Well, good morning. It's good to see you once again. Delighted to be with you as we continue to celebrate Advent. This morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. A fascinating picture and prophecy regarding the Advent of Jesus Christ. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. They're written for you, and they're written for me. They are timeless, and they are true. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, Well, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the pathway of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, not long ago, I read about what some historians refer to as the Christmas truce of 1914. And it's very interesting. And that was interesting. I guess hope, hope everything's okay. Um, the Christmas truce of 1914. The Christmas truce of 1914 refers to a remarkable event 
that happened nine months after the beginning of World War I. World War I was one of the most difficult and brutal wars the world had ever seen. It had gone on for nine months, many months longer than anyone anticipated, and was more difficult and arduous and costly than anyone imagined. World War I was what some people refer to as the pinnacle of trench warfare. Um, and in some cases, nations and the lines of armies could be as close as 30 yards from one another, the two lines, with, with a small no-man's land between them. And so Christmas Eve of 1914, along the western front of the war, in the evening, the British soldiers began to hear these ethereal voices singing. They started to hear the Germans sing Christmas carols, um, a number that they recognized. They recognized Silent Night, Holy Night. It sounded beautiful. Well, not to be outdone, the, bridge, the, the British commanders commanded their troops to sing back to them, um, um, heartier, louder, and more. And so there was a kind of sing-off between the Germans on one side and the British on the other, and it culminated with them singing together. This has been recorded in the London Times. Um, letters were later written by soldiers on both sides to their families, telling them about this remarkable situation that happened in many sectors along the Western Front. Well, after they sang together, again, because in some places the trenches were only 30 yards apart, they started to exchange Christmas greetings. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until someone in one of the trenches said, tomorrow, you no shoot, we no shoot. Okay? The other side responded, a truce for Christmas Day. The next day, and this is remarkable, men from both sides tested the truce. First they popped up their heads, and then they climbed out of their bunkers, and they actually had the courage to walk into the middle of no man's land, which was not something you would normally do if you valued your life. First one, then two. As history records it, there were soon hundreds of soldiers from both sides in various sectors in the middle of no man's land, shaking hands and exchanging gifts. What had happened over the month of December um, families from both sides, governments, the government on both sides had sent presents to the soldiers. Um, believe it or not, what, what do you think the most popular gift was? If you think back, cigarettes. Thousands and thousands and thousands of cigarettes were sent to the soldiers on both sides, more than they knew what to do with. They were given scarves, coats, gloves, dark chocolate, we still have some of the boxes of dark chocolate, cakes, a variety of things, and so they exchanged gifts and souvenirs in no man's land. Someone had a soccer ball, they called it football then, someone had a soccer ball, 
In some sectors, hundreds of men kicked the ball together. In others, it was said that there was a formal game. The Germans won three to two. Incredible. Soldiers said they'd never slept so good as they did on Christmas Eve. They enjoyed a peace all on Christmas Day, all affected because of Christmas, because of the birth of Jesus Christ was deeply impactful to both sides. There was only one problem. What do you think that it was? It was temporary and fleeting. And the very next day, hostilities commenced. A beautiful picture of the peace that Christmas brings. It can make adversaries into one. Well, this morning, what we have before us is a remarkable prophecy. It's a remarkable prophecy. It's a prophecy that talks about a peace, a peace that we know will one day be affected in full, a peace that will never end, an end to the war. Because ever since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, that began a bloody and brutal war between the seed of the woman, God's people, and Satan and his forces. A brutal and bloody war that has been going on ever since. And one day, that war is going to be over. And peace will ensue. Okay, and our passage speaks of, it ends with the fact that the Lord is going to lead us into this peace. And so I want us to look at this prophecy for a few minutes this morning and see what we can glean from it, you know, because I think oftentimes what we end up doing is, is Christmas becomes mostly about looking back to the birth of Christ, which it certainly is. But Christmas is also looking ahead. Christmas isn't just an event that happened 2,000 years ago, as Michael prayed in his prayer. The true culmination of Christmas will come in the second advent of Jesus Christ. And all of those things are bound up together in this prophecy. Let's look briefly. Okay, the occasion of the prophecy. Why did this prophecy happen? So Zechariah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, issues this prophecy. Interestingly, I think it's kind of interesting, this was the last Old Covenant prophecy before the birth of Jesus Christ. Think for thousands of years in various forms, through various prophets in various books of the Old Testament, there had been prophetic utterances, foretellings that a Messiah is coming. Lots and lots and lots. This is the very last one before the birth of Jesus. His birth was just six months away. This was the last word of God through the Holy Spirit to his people before D-Day. The occasion of it was this. The reason there's a prophecy, if you go back a few months, do you remember when the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah and told Zechariah the good news? The good news in Zechariah's context was that after many years of barrenness and childlessness, that Zechariah and Elizabeth were going to be granted a son. His name would be John. Do you remember how Zechariah responded? He did not respond in faith. 
He did not believe the word of Gabriel. And so what did Gabriel do? What was the consequence? Okay, Gabriel inflicted a punishment on Zechariah. Do you remember what that was? It said he would be silenced. So Gabriel said, but there's an irony here, kind of a wordplay. Gabriel says, because you did not believe my word. You didn't believe my word. You will be silent until all these things come to pass. And so here we are nine months later. And it's the day for the baby's circumcision in naming. In the first century, when you brought your son to be circumcised, that's the day his name would be confirmed. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth, faithful Jews, have brought their baby boy, eight days old, to be circumcised and named. And the officials there ask the mother. Why do you think they asked the mother first? Zechariah couldn't speak. They asked Elizabeth, we assume, or basically they said, we assume you're going to name the child Zechariah. In the first century, they didn't have baby names, like chic baby names. I won't even give examples. I don't want to offend anyone. Um, but they didn't have chic new baby names. Okay, they were old-fashioned, they were traditional. The firstborn son would always be named after his father or his father's father. It would be a family name. Elizabeth responds with the unthinkable. His name is what? John, which was shocking to the officials. And so then look what the text says in verse 62. And I don't want to read too much into the text, okay? Earlier in Luke, Gabriel said, because you did not believe my word, okay, you're going to be silent until these things come to pass. But I think there might have been something else other than Zechariah just be just being rendered mute or unable to speak. Many theologians think that in addition to that, what really happened was he was rendered deaf and dumb, deaf and mute. Because they didn't ask Zechariah, what's the name of the child going to be? What did they do in 62? It's like they played a game of charades with Zechariah, okay? And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. It's very possible that in addition to being mute or unable to speak, he was unable to spear this, unable to hear. This would have been a very, very, very difficult affliction to live with for nine months. We can't even imagine how hard this would be to all your life. You know, he's presumably old at this time since both, since, you know, Elizabeth was barren. So to not be able to speak, to not be able to hear would have been very difficult. And so what does he do? He's asked to confirm what's the child's name. He asks for a writing tablet. He writes down his name is John. What happens after he does that? Okay, the curse, the punishment is taken away. And he can speak. And it's a glorious miracle. And how did the people respond? They responded to two things. They responded to the miracle of him being able to speak. He also responded to the fact that this child had a different name. This child was not going to be named Zechariah or another name in the family. This child's name was going to be John. And so the presence of the miracle associated with this new name indicated to the people that this child's life was going to be very different and very significant. And out of joy and wonderment, Zechariah, at having his speech restored, issues out this blessing. He praises God. Okay, and that praise and that blessing is recorded in 68 
through 79. So that's the occasion of this prophecy. After nine months, his infliction has been removed. His voice is restored. And here's what he says. And I think this is interesting. Because when we think about salvation, we think about salvation very differently than salvation is described in this prophecy. And I want us to think about that. So what you're going to have here, the Holy Spirit inspires Zechariah. Almost every word of this prophecy, if you will, is a quote or a direct allusion to Old Testament predictions concerning the advent of the Messiah. So this is not new material. This is an assimilation of the Old Testament prophet's description of the coming of the Christ. And so, so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Zechariah is repeating all of these Old Testament prophecies that are about to come true through the birth of the Messiah. And I want us to just consider how it's described, okay, in comparison to what the light of the new covenant tells us they really mean in their full-orbed way. Okay, let's see if this makes sense. So, verse 68. Remember, at the end of 64, he's blessing God, praising God. His speech is restored, okay? Then verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So he's saying the advent of this, of this baby, is he talking about John here? No, the vast majority of this prophecy does not relate to his son John the Baptist. Okay, It relates to the one his son is pointing to. Okay, look at the language. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation. That, that child has arrived. That child is in Mary's womb. And that child is described as a horn of salvation. Why is the child described as a horn of salvation? If your child asked you, why would the child be described uh, as a horn of salvation? Because in the ancient Near East in the first century, horns were associated with power and strength and might. Horns were symbols of power and strength and victory. And so in the context of the Old Testament, the Messiah came to be described as the horn of salvation, a strength a symbol of strength and power and might. So that's a metaphor for the Messiah. He's coming from the house of David. Look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Why is that there? That's there to remind Zechariah and future readers that God is faithful. Everything he promises comes true down to the letter. This isn't new. This isn't novel. This is precisely what God had said would happen. And it's happening now. A horn of salvation has come. This was prophesied of old. Look at verse 71. So, before you look at 71, if you were going to share the gospel with someone this afternoon, you probably would not use this language. If you were to share with someone 
about what Advent means, you would not put it in this language. But that does not mean that this language is not true. Okay? We'll explore why that is. I won't give it away. Look at verse 71. So this was the Old Covenant conception of salvation. Okay? This is the way people in the Old Covenant conceived that salvation would involve. Okay? Look at 71. This horn of salvation is being raised up in the house of David. Why? Verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Isn't that an interesting way to describe salvation? Being saved from the hand of our enemies, okay, and from the hand of all who hate us. So what's happening here is that in the Old Testament and here now in the first century, the Jews understood salvation in a nationalistic way. They understood salvation as involving them as a people in a particular land being delivered from the hand of their oppressors. Okay, you're going to see that all of this language is kind of nationalistic, okay? And I'll flesh out what I mean by that. Look at verse 73. This is going to happen in fulfillment to what? The oath that he, God, swore to our father Abraham to grant us. That comes in Genesis 22. God makes an oath to Abraham. Okay, that he's going to deliver the people. They're going to possess the gates of their enemies. Earlier in the Abrahamic covenant, he said, what did God promise to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant? He said, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into what? A nation. How did they understand that? A nation with geographic boundaries. I'm going to give you a land. God told Abraham, I'm giving you the land of Canaan. So they knew they were going to have innumerable descendants. They were going to be made into a nation called Israel. They were going to live in the land of Canaan. They were going to possess the gates of their enemies. Okay, they were going to live without fear in holiness and righteousness all their days. Look at that. Verse 74, what's the goal of all this? That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. The Abrahamic covenant envisioned a day when Israel would be subjected to slavery in Egypt. The Abrahamic covenant... A covenant anticipated that the people would be free. They would be redeemed from Pharaoh's oppressive hand. That they would go to Canaan, be made into a nation, have innumerable descendants, and would worship without fear. What does that mean? Worship without fear. What do you think that means? In holiness and righteousness all our days. It means they wouldn't have to worry about an enemy invading their land or taking them over, or telling them that they couldn't worship, or telling them what they had to do or couldn't do, they would live in freedom. They could worship. They could sacrifice. Okay? And all of this, in a sense, came to a mini-fulfillment through whom? Do you, do you think? Do you remember? In the Old Testament. So these promises, they did come to an initial fulfillment. Does anybody remember when? So dial in with me. This is good. I would love for you to be able later today to explain at least what you heard in the sermon. 
How did this kind of come to an initial fulfillment? Through whom? Through David. David was the apple of God's eye. David embodied everything that Israel wanted in their king. And under David's leadership, they expanded their borders. They were safe and secure. They worshiped without fear. They were delivered from the hands of all of their enemies. That was the Old Testament conception of salvation. Okay, so fast forward. In Zechariah's day, what's the historical situation? Do they have a king? No. Do they have their independence? No. Under whose authority are they? Rome. If you fast forward just 30 years to Jesus' life and ministry, what was the main concern of the Pharisees and others? That, that Rome would come in and take away their way of life and take away their temple and, and, and keep them from worshiping. And so they just lived under fear all the time. What was Zechariah expecting this horn of salvation to do? Zechariah was expecting this horn of salvation, A, to be purely a human. Someone just like David, blessed of God, to free them from Rome's power, to restore their borders so they could live without fear, as the text says, in 74 and 75, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, what would Zechariah have thought? What would have popped into his brain? Rome, Caesar, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. In other words, no, no concern about Roman armies marching in. Serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Is that what the advent of the Messiah brought? Yes or no? No. That's why he was rejected. That's why the vast majority of Jews turned their back on him. That was just the first phase of the war. Jesus came, the Messiah, the horn of salvation, to offer himself up so that verse 77 could come to pass, to give knowledge of salvation. This is what John is doing. At this point, 77 is talking about John the Baptist would give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That was the first phase, the first advent. So how does the light of the new covenant, look at the end of it. Verse 79. We'll go back to verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. What does that mean? Jesus Christ is that sunrise. Jesus Christ brought the light of his gospel to a people who were subject to misery and difficulty, were living in darkness. Jesus explained, ultimately, and then later his apostles, um, and the apostle Paul explained what all of this really meant. See, the sun is still rising. And when the sun reaches its apex, when Advent comes again, all of the promises that God made to Abraham will come true. Israel, as we've said before, is not just... The spiritual Israel that God has in store for his people, it has no boundaries. There are no borders. Everywhere 
where there is a converted lover of Jesus, that's where spiritual Israel is. We find out as the sun rises in the new covenant that Israel is a people. It's a spiritual people, a people from every tribe and nation and people group and wherever the Lord's people are, that's where spiritual Israel is. Where are Christians right now? They're all over the world. The kingdom of God, through the birth of Jesus Christ, expanded far beyond Israel. It's now the entire world. We find out in the gospel of Jesus Christ that the impact of Advent is global. The effect of Christmas is global. Our conception of Christmas is too small. Our conception of Christmas primarily involves looking back. Okay? Christmas involves not only looking back, but looking forward, okay, to the day that the war is fully over and peace and mercy and righteousness and light reigns. Okay? Zechariah didn't understand all that would be unfolded in the glory of the new covenant. That's what's amazing. That, that Christmas truce of 1914 was just the tiniest of a foreshadowing of the peace and truce that will come when he comes again. And, and if you look at the Bible, God first gave his people a garden, and then he gave his people a nation, and one day he is giving people the entire world, my friends. That's incredible. That's the real meaning of Christmas. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, uh, we must confess that our view of Christmas is too small. It's too limited. It's, it's, too, it's too nationalistic, Father. Um, the implications of Christmas are, are global, maybe even, even universal. Father, we, um, as, as, as Michael prayed, we, we acknowledge, Lord, we live in a very dark world. There, there are elements of peace and joy and wonder and love and hope and expectation, but, but largely this world is filled with darkness and difficulty and brokenness and death and difficult diagnoses and all kinds of, all kinds of challenging things, Father. We know this world is not our home. Um, Lord, we look forward to the day when dawn will will usher in the full afternoon sun of righteousness. Lord, we look forward to the day that you send your son again to make all things new so that your people will enjoy the presence of the triune God all over the world because you have raised up a horn of salvation, Father. Whatever view we have of Jesus, it's just far too small. Help us to love him and praise him and worship him. And Father, and in the same way they were living in this kind of expectant hope, Father, we pray that you would reinforce to us that we are to live with that same mindset, that same expectant hope, Lord, that what you promised will, will one day come to its fullest fulfillment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.